And welcome back to NASA Edge uh, here with the MMS team uh, for round two. Uh, we had to uh, get rid of the, uh, the first nine and we brought in another seven. Uh, how are you guys doing? Good. You said you were going to do much better than the first group, right? Of course. Uh, 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 okay, there you go. Okay. Uh, and that's a good person. That's a good place to start with uh, Joanne. We had a chance to interview you. Uh, I don't know about a year ago or so. Or yeah. A lot's happened since then. Yes. Uh, as as a test engineer, uh, what have you done in the, in the in the past year? Well, in the last year, we have finished building four spacecraft. We've taken them through lots of different types of tests. We've done vibration testing, we've done thermal vac testing, we've stacked all four of them, and we've shaken the stack to simulate the loads that we'll see during a launch. And we've done lots and lots and lots of testing and integrated lots and lots and lots of instruments. How long did it take you to actually stack the, the four spacecraft? Well, honestly, it took us about four days to actually get through the actual stacking process because there's a lot you know, a prep work that we have to do. And then we also ended have to bag the spacecraft because it, the vibration cell that we put it in is not as clean as our clean rooms. So that took a long time. And then it took us about a month to actually run through the whole test. Wow. Now, now Justin, you work with Joanne. Yeah. And, and we got we to gotta settle this right at the beginning. How, did, how was her performance on her uh, first NASA Edge uh, show? Top notch. Top notch. Uh, yep. See, you... I trained him well. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Justin, what is what is as as a test engineer, you pretty much do the same things that Joanne is is working on. Uh, not really. I work with the um, different various subsystems to uh, write code uh, using a language that NASA invented uh, to create the test that we run uh, during the various environmental testing. So NASA invented what kind of code is that? The basic uh, or it's very similar to basic. Is it? So is, is that a long process to develop that code and work with that code too? Yeah, I mean, we, we make a lot of changes to it throughout the test as we learn, you know, uh, what doesn't work and what does work, so. And, and what were some of the, uh, the challenges that you had to, to face during that time? Um, I mean, uh, we've had a couple different hardware failures that we had to take the boxes back off the spacecraft and have the various pieces of hardware reworked. And we have had several software problems that uh, we upgrade the software so when we find bugs. So really, I mean, just like any other mission, when you're building a satellite or you're building a spacecraft, I mean, you come up with these anomalies, these, these issues during, I mean, that's the whole, that's why you're engineers. I mean, you, you test, you break things, you rebuild them, and you come up with, uh, with new parts. Uh, Oscar, a few months away, we have, you know, March is coming up pretty close. Uh, are you getting nervous yet? Yeah, definitely getting nervous. We're doing a lot of mission rehearsal testing, trying to get the team ready for launch and commissioning phase now. And you have an important task because you're involved with the guidance and navigation mm -hmm. with the spacecraft. So if it goes off course, do we come to you? Yeah, the, probably the, first come to me and then okay. I'll go to this, the subsystem experts depending on what caused the problem. Okay. Um, if it's a propulsion system problem, we'll talk to the propulsion PDLs, uh, product, um, yeah, PDL project design lead. If I got that right. <laughs> there's, there's, there's so many acronyms at NASA, but you, how, how do you keep track of all, all of them? Uh, I hear there's actually a website that talks about all the acronyms that NASA uses. Oh, really? I've, that's what I've heard. Okay. I haven't actually seen it. You should probably take a college course in that. And, yeah. and say, yeah. Yes, that in itself. And then if it's a problem with the controller, that'd be the ACS system, the add to control system. If there's any problems with the, um, the navigation side of things where orbit determination We'll work with either the Navigator hardware team or the Flight Dynamics team. And that must be really challenging having four 
identical, I should say in quotes, identical, because you said they all have personalities. Yes, but they all do. For, but four spacecraft in a tight flying formation throughout the whole mission. I mean, I'd seen it's, it's really challenging from a, from a guidance and navigation perspective. It is, it's extremely challenging. The four spacecraft are in tetrahedron, where when we get towards what's known as a region of interest, that's where we have to maintain the, what we call quality factor, the, how well the tetrahedron is to that region of interest. And as we're approaching towards perigee, different parts of the orbit, the spacecraft actually get closer together and they'll pass each other in their orbits. So that's definitely one of the areas we're concerned about is them getting too close together. Is there going to be a certain point where during the mission where you may see a point of interest that didn't come up before and you'll have to expand that tetrahedron or, or you know, reduce the size of it? I mean, you could do that on the fly if you had to. We do that. Um, so there are, I think, three different tetrahedron sizes that we look at or scale sizes. 10 kilometers, I think 25 kilometers, and there's a, maybe a 150 kilometers. And during the early part of the mission, the scientists are taking a look and seeing what scale size is the right size for them to measure these reconnection events. So once you get to the primary phase, then they'll choose the size. Now, sitting to your left is Tony, uh, and you're involved in configuration management mm -hmm. for MMS. Uh, what does that entail? Um, controlling all of the project documentation, putting it out for review, release, um, making it available to the team and work orders, that sort of thing. So you have the power of the pen, so you could actually change a little something here and there if you want, if you had to? Yeah. I don't, I don't so go around so talking about so it. So like with you know, Oscar's uh, performance plan, you can just change that from an A to an E if you had to, or an mm -hmm. A to an F? He gets an A. If, mm -hmm. Now that, I mean, that's a lot of work, because you have, I mean, I can imagine the stacks of paperwork for a mission, especially MMS with four spacecraft. Close to 6,000 work orders right now. 6,000 work orders? But 5,400 and 14 are closed. That's a good number. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to say you're pretty good with numbers. Mm, that's it. That's, <laughs> that's as far as I go, yeah. Now, I, I've got to ask this question, Bobby. Um, engine valve drive engineer. I mean, last time I looked at a college diploma, I never, I didn't see an engine valve drive engineer on the, usually it's aerospace, it's mechanical, electrical. That's correct. Did you make, what, make so, that up yourself? Uh, yeah. Well, I try to find lots of titles on the project and fill those needs. Okay. But uh, I'm a mechanical engineer, but uh, for the project, okay. I'm the uh, engine valve drive lead. So, uh, we're in engine valve drive is basically what drives the spacecraft. So, as Oscar mentioned earlier, ACS, ACS has their... And what's ACS stand for? Attitude Control System. Okay. So, they, uh, they want to move the spacecraft, they do their software, and then they tell EVD to fire a thruster. And then we handle the actual firing of thrusters at their predetermined duration and sequence. So we, we handle the hardware portion of actually firing the thrusters. And we work in concert with the propulsion system as well. Um, so it's a big effort un as a unit. It's not just one single system. Now, were you, were you involved in actually uh, determining that hydrogen was going to be used for the? No. So you're not part of that? Okay. No, no I'm not. Uh, that would probably be propulsion or stuff that I don't know about. <laughs> <laughs> It's a well, well, I, I, well, I think it's fair to say Kenny doesn't have a cool name. He's just a mechanical engineer, but you're engine valve drive. I am the engine valve drive. Okay. Which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. We, we shorten it. We call it EVD. Okay. EV so, uh, EVD? And we're always go, so. <laughs> All right, Bobby. Uh, I don't know if you knew this, but you actually have an education and public outreach lead for the mission, and he's standing to your right, sitting to your right. That's oh, Troy. Hey, how you doing? Nice to meet you. So, so Troy. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Chris. I'm going to say EPO lead and see if people know what that means, Education and Public Outreach. That's right. Uh, That's right. You have actually a pretty cool job because I do. It's, 
you know, you have all the engineers working on the project, you have scientists working on the project, and sometimes it's, t and let's face it, I mean, this is just honesty, sometimes it's tough for the scientists to del uh, deliver that information in a, in a very easy way to the public, and that's where you come in. That's right. I like to think of myself as a translator. So I end up working with various people that I talk to in the mission, whether it's engineers, scientists, technicians, or even photographers in the various career fields, and uh, end up having a conversation with them and with the Office of Communications folks, and we find out a little bit more about their story, and then uh, try to piece together how we can translate that into something classrooms, museums, general public can use, and that, that goes into a variety of projects that we work on. Now, over the past uh, several years, as you've been engaging the public, uh, talking to them about the MMS spacecraft, uh, I mean, you have some cool outreach materials from models mm -hmm. to, to Lego models to the cutouts. How, how have the kids been inspired? I mean, because to me, when you look at four identical spacecraft, you see this in a tetrahedron pattern. I mean, there's, there's a lot from an education standpoint you can teach these kids. I mean, what, what have you been doing to try to enhance that MMS mission? Well, when I first came on board with the mission, they said one of your biggest challenges with this particular mission is the concept is very abstract for the public and you need to work on ways with our, our team to find ways to help the public try to take that in a usable, digestible way that makes sense to them for how does this affect me here on Earth and why would I care? What I found out is when you go into classrooms and you talk to different groups, when you first say magnetospheric multi-scale mission, if you're not careful, you'll see eyes start to glaze over. So I immediately come in there and start talking about magnetic explosions in space and the trigger of space weather and how we're flying four spacecraft, almost like a jet formation around the Earth for two years. And when you start talking in those types of engineering terms and then mix the science in, eyes start to brighten up a little bit. People get very interested in it. I like the analogy of a jet formation going around you know, around the Earth, and, and you can you can use this, it's free charge, but won't you classify yourselves as the Blue Angels of NASA? I think that's a great idea. <laughs> I think that sounds great. So Troy, so in terms of you know, education and public outreach, you have a sort of a counterpart, which is public affairs, and that's where Susan comes in. So Susan, while Troy's in the classrooms talking to, you know, informal educators, you're dealing with issues for the public. Yes. And, and, and what's that role as a public affairs uh, person? I basically take the science and the mission and I try to break it down like Troy does and make it digestible enough for reporters, news media. And reporters and news media these days don't do a specific beat, so you have to be able to explain things to them. What's difficult about this mission is the visuals. It's not like SDO, which has really pretty pictures of the sun, or other missions that have Earth science missions that show hurricanes and wildfires. We have a team that works with us that, that actually do the visuals. We have a web person, we have a science writer, so we work together to get the story out. When you're at the four spacecraft are, are, are orbiting around the Earth, I mean, you're not, you're not really seeing magnetic reconnection, are you? With your, with your naked eye? No. I mean, I mean you, you're only getting it you know, uh, in situ through your science instruments. Right based on a set of numbers and that, and that data. And when you bring that data back down, it's the scientist's job to decipher that and, and, and synthesize it, right? So, so I, I can see it in, in one sense, yeah, it's kind of hard to, to, you know, to get the public uh, excited about seeing nothing. Right. But, but, it, but, it, but it's still pretty cool from, you know, from the engineering aspect to, to be able to, to pull that off, uh, to learn about magnetic reconnection uh, and do it in, in a way that's, um, I mean, it's very challenging. I mean, that's gotta be very rewarding for all of you. It really is a challenge for us. That's why it's very important for us in education and communications 
to reach out and partner with other organizations that are very good along with NASA that we can work with to do outreach. For instance, uh, the International Society of Technology and Education. They're just experts at helping us get to the public with great outreach materials that are cutting edge education technology, such as 3D printing, for instance. We're starting to learn how to use that. We're also getting into real serious model building with hobbyists and groups and clubs, and we have one incredible model. All of those materials are gonna be ready to uh, download shortly. Now, uh, Joanne, um, so let's assume we have a, success, a successful launch in March. Atlas V goes up, the four spacecraft are deployed. You go through your five-month test period, everything checks out, and then now you're into your mission. Just for the sake, let's say there's an anomaly on board one of the spacecraft. Does the team then come back together that worked on it and, and try to figure out what's going on and, and to come up with a solution to that problem? Yes, yeah, so, um, you know, during the mission, if there's a problem with one of the components, they'll definitely, you know, they, they call up. Actually, Oscar gets called up a lot from his previous missions to, uh, to help solve problems. So um, we definitely pull on everybody on the team who needs to, you know, solve problems. So Oscar, you, it seems like you have some experience with, uh, from past missions. That's correct. And, and can you share some of, the, some of those uh, examples? Um, so the past mission I've most, most recently been working on is uh, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. And there's been uh, different anomalies that have occurred where we've entered uh, what we call sun safe. So I get called back in to help diagnose what happened, what caused us to enter those, and then to get us back into the observing mode or into science operations. Very cool. And is there, are there any stories that you can share over the, from the past three, four, five years that maybe it was something in, in a lab that was pretty funny, something that, that happened where you had to really uh, come up with a unique solution to solve. Was there anything that's, that was challenging that you can, that you can think of that you, you care to share? I'll pass to Joanne. <laughs> uh, let's see. Well, actually, we did have one of our transporters burn up one time. We were, <laughs> we were transporting one of our spacecraft to the Naval Research Lab for our thermal vac test, and we noticed there was smoke coming out from the truck. <laughs> so we had the fire department was there, and we had some of our folks, you know, get the fire extinguishers out. And luckily, you know, our spacecraft was fine, you know, but um, that was pretty exciting and kind of scary. But we did have to redesign our you know, our transporter pretty quickly so we could get, uh, and we had to come up with different solutions so that we could, you know, make sure that we were ready to take our spacecraft back and bring the other spacecraft back to, you know, to NRL, so. So what you're saying is, uh, Tony had probably another thousand pieces of paperwork she yeah. had to do for it to, to, to make that happen. But yeah, so Michelle had a lot of work to do since she's the safety engineer, she had a lot of work to do. Now, in, in considering something like that, I mean, from the, from the public affairs side, I'm sure you, had to be involved. I mean, that, that's anytime something happens where you have an anomaly or something that's that occurs. That's a call I I'm, never want to get. I, that's right. <laughs> and I did. Yeah, it's, we work closely with the, with the project team and the project managers and the leads. And then we work out, uh, you know, uh, we make sure we have all our details straight and the information is correct. And we go ahead and release it to the public. But I mean, stuff like this does happen. It's just important to work together to make sure that the message is correct to get out. And Justin, going, going back to you, uh, as far as a test engineer and you're talk, working with software, is, is your job still functional as the spacecraft are orbiting around the Earth? Uh, yeah, I'm actually also part of the flight operations team okay. uh, that will be managing the flight of the spacecraft uh, after launch. Is that sort of a subset of the entire team that will stick around? Is it, 
I mean, does your, does your, in other words, does your entire MMS team become more of a skeleton crew during the actual mission, or are you still intact uh, during that time? Uh, a lot of our, a lot of our systems engineers and subsystem leads will definitely be there at the beginning. I think once um, there's a, as Justin is part of this, as flight operations team, there's a core team that actually flies the mission for the two years. Um, and they work with the scientists and get the data down and, and put the spacecraft in the right orientations. Um, but um, so part of the team does continue on through the operations sections. And then a lot of the other people go on to different missions. Information. Now, Bobby, you, know, you said you talked about you're the, you know, the engine valve drive. I love that, EVD. That's, that's really cool. Are you the only one at NASA that's the EVD? Uh, yeah, I think I've never so. Heard, I've think never they, heard of that before. They call so. it PDE and other things on other missions. So I think, I think I could be the only EVD lead on NASA. So you, so you'd be part of that. I mean, you still stay on since. If, yeah, if I'll stay. We'll stay for commissioning. Okay. And once, uh, once we hand it over to the flight ops team, like uh, you mentioned earlier, unless there's an anomaly, uh, we won't be supporting. So we'll support through commissioning. Now, where's the? Um, who's going to be uh, controlling the spacecraft once? It's in orbit and collecting data. Is, is Goddard responsible for uh, collect handling? Justin. Uh, so, so, <laughs> so you're going to be sitting on console making uh, throughout the day, making sure the spacecraft are, are healthy? Yeah, I mean, for that, those uh, five months of commissioning, it'll be running 24 hours a day. So, so you're not going to be in there with the joystick and say, hey, I want to play some games and change the tetrahedral shape of this and see how things are going. Yeah, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't, doesn't work like that? <laughs> no. now, now, how long, let's say you, let's say you had to change the, uh, the, the, the orientation of the spacecraft. I mean, how, how long does that take from the time you send it commands to when the spacecraft receives it and it starts to, to move? Um, from the time we send the commands, um, I'm trying to think of the right way to answer this question. So the commands we have is all on, all on board, so we do it through an automated sequence. So once we enter the mode, it takes a few minutes um, by the time that uh, we've, ch uh, we've changed the size of the formation. We actually did a mission readiness test um, last week where we were changing the formation size and the maneuvers were all in order of a couple minutes. Now, is there any point throughout the orbits where you'll lose contact with the spacecraft? That we lose contact with the spacecraft? Um, actually, with, with our whole orbit, we actually have a good, we have a good view periods to all the stations. It's just what's available and how much contact time we need. So um, for our mission, normally we have uh, per orbit, which is about a day for phase one, we'll have one DSN pass plus uh, two passes with TDRS, which is um, right. a near perigee. So we'll have a pre-perigee and post-perigee TDRS passes. When we have maneuvers, we'll have an additional DSN pass. And that's Deep Space, it's deep space Network? Yeah, sir, okay. Deep Space Network. And I don't remember what TDRS stands for. Tracking, uh... <laughs> right. And we, we covered TDRS, and I, I still don't. See, I gotta take the course, you know, with all with the website. Exactly. I do have a question that I want each of you to answer, um, and we'll start with you, uh, Susan, and we'll just kind of go down the line. How has this mission impacted your life over the past several years? Well, actually, all the heliophysics missions impact my, my life because I've learned so much about, I don't have a science background, so I've learned so much about the science and, you know, what uh, the Sun-Earth connection and when you talk about what happens on the Sun, it's 93 million miles away, but it, it does, it can affect us here in our technology. So it, that's how it's impacted me. Joanne? So, um... 
for me. Uh, MMS for me has been a big exercise in logistics. <laughs> so uh, just trying to plan every day what we're doing has been quite an experience. And and also, you know, working with everybody is, has been great. And I've made a lot of new good friends. Sounds like when you retire from NASA, you could probably become the president of UPS. <laughs> <laughs> I'll think about that one, yeah. <laughs> Oscar, what about you? Um, so I think the biggest takeaway I've taken um, from this, from working MMS is, again, just the, the logistics of things, of four spacecraft, making sure that we update things as we, as we test. Um, one of the things we do when we build single spacecraft is you do procedures, you do tests, you do it one time. So you take those lessons learned and you might fold, may or may not fold them in. Here we have to fold them in to make, sure, make our lives easier as we continue on. Tony? What was the question again? How, how has uh, MMS's mission impacted your life uh, since you've been working on the project? Um, I think that here at Goddard it has helped. I mean, I, I've learned to be, I think, more organized. And again, with you know, the four spacecraft and trying to keep things separate and the way that we track data, um, we've actually gone, you know, we talked about the fact that they were numbers one, two, three, and four. Each one is color-coded also. I don't know if anybody said that, but Within our database, we've actually made it so that, let's say you're entering a work order, um, depending upon what observatory you're choosing, it's actually coming up on your screen in that color. Um, when we print it, we print your work order on paper, you know, the same color paper. Right. Um, so we've definitely overcome challenges, I think, from, you know, from the very beginning. So you're pretty much making life easier for the engineers and scientists we hope working, so. working on the mission. We hope so. Justin? Um, well, this is actually my first mission out of college, so just learning the logistics of how it actually works and how spacecraft are really built. So. Well, I'm going to stay with you for one second. So you're just fresh out of college, so do you think college has prepared you for the MMS mission? Yeah, I would say they did a pretty good job. Did a pretty good job? Okay. Troy? I think the biggest takeaway for me is learning how to deal with very difficult people like Susan. I'm just saying, Susan, I just had to throw it out. <laughs> no, we get along great. <laughs> I work right beside her. I have to be careful. No, but actually, uh, being able to work with the variety of people that I am exposed to in this mission has been incredible because I get to take that and I get to see the expressions on people's faces when I tell them about a different type of career that they could actually follow and pursue. So for me, it's all about the passion of why people here do what they do and trying to figure out a way to convey that out to the public. And the only engine valve driver at NASA. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what I take away is I was brought here to work uh, MMS, so that's why I was brought here. So uh, MMS has afforded me lots of, uh, lots of opportunity to grow uh, career-wise and with uh, my peers. So it's, uh, I think the project as a whole has afforded uh, lots of people lots of opportunity to uh, work in other areas where they might not usually work and uh, see what's a good fit and uh, just really understand how Joanne handles INT. Uh, she does an excellent job doing it. It's a lot going on for all of us and uh, I think it's been a great opportunity and I've been, uh, I'm excited and thankful to be a part of it. Well, well said and, and I want to thank all of you uh, for participating in, in, in this uh, event. Uh, we're still looking forward to this launch come March and, and seeing actually the MMS spacecraft perform and actually seeing the first data come back down and see if you actually have magnetic reconnection. It better be there. <laughs> well, thank you again. Uh, thank you so much for joining us in this special edition of NASA EDGE. Uh, our intent was to get a look at how a team functions together, 
Uh, normally, when we do our video podcast, we're, we're you know, interviewing engineers and scientists one-on-one, but this is a first chance to get a group of people together, uh, hear their responses, and see how they interact with each other. So thank you for watching NASA Edge, an inside and outside look at all things NASA.